So as we pick up the story here, as we saw, Jesus has called these men to to, um, now join him in fishing for men. Remember I pointed out that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they pick up the, the, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, but these guys had already been with the Lord for a year. And so now he's calling them, as we saw previously, he's calling them away from their profession as fishermen, and he's calling them to join him in fishing for men. And, and all of this is taking place there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea, the sea of Galilee is really, we would think of the Sea of Galilee more as a lake. Now, it's actually referred to in scripture as the Lake of Gennesaret. That's another name for it. Uh, but, the, but the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide and presently is about 13 miles in length. It used to be uh, a little bit bigger in ancient times. But, you know, it's not that large of a body of water, but that's the area where uh, the public ministry of Jesus uh, took place, much of it. And that, that's the area where Jesus actually uh, would base himself, and he would do that in this, uh, the city or the town of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, you can go, if you ever go to Israel with us, you can go to Capernaum today. It's, there's, no, there's not a modern city there, but there are uh, the ruins of the ancient city there. And even today, you can go to the synagogue in Capernaum. It's not the same one that Jesus was in, but the one that's there today is about, I think, a fourth century synagogue that is literally built on top of the, the previous synagogue, the one that Jesus would have been in on uh, this particular day. But it's, it's really interesting that Jesus chose this region to set up his operation. And, and what you realize when you go to Israel today and you kind of see the, the topography and, and you realize the ancient demographics that although the, the, the western side of the sea was predominantly Jewish and very religious, the, the eastern side of the sea was very much Gentile. And on the eastern side of the sea, we'll come across this as we go through this gospel, there's a reference to the cities of the Decapolis. Decapolis, there were, that means 10 cities. There were 10 cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee that were Greek cities and eventually became Roman cities. And they were filled with all of the things that you would find in a Greek or a Roman city. They were filled with idolatrous temples. They were filled with houses of prostitution. Uh, they were just filled with all of the... Um, evil things that would have permeated the Greco-Roman culture at that time. And yet this is the region that Jesus chooses as his base of operation. But that was a fulfillment of a prophecy. Because back in Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 2, it said this, By way of the sea, beyond the Jordan... In Galilee of the Gentiles. So by, by the time the prophecy was be, would be fulfilled, it would be referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And so Jesus comes and he sets up his base in this place that is a very dark place spiritually. It, in a sense, it's kind of like um, Jesus sets up his base of operation in the headquarters of Satan. So it's like the devil's got his base of operation here. Jesus says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move right in here and I'm going to set up. And that in and of itself is a reminder to us, to the church and to Christian individual people, that God has called us to penetrate the darkness. God has called us to, to go into those dark places with the light of the gospel, not to shy away from them. You know, there are a lot of people who would look at certain places and say, man, I don't want to go there. Well, we can never go there with the gospel because, man, that place is so evil. Well, guess what? That's what the gospel is for. It's to go to places like that and to bring the light. So Jesus sets us an example, really, by setting up his base of operation right there in that particular place. Now, the emphasis that we're going to look at here today in the verses that we read is on the authority of Jesus. So that, that's the emphasis that Mark places right here, um, that Jesus, both in word and deed, he had an authority that had never been heard or seen before. And Mark refers to the people in response to Jesus, both to his teaching and to his power over the demons and over sickness. He says that the people were astonished, is one word he used, and then he says that they were amazed. So to put it in our terminology today, um, we could translate it, and the people, their minds were blown when they heard what Jesus taught. He taught them like nobody had ever taught them before. They were, a, a British term is gobsmacked. They were just, you know, completely uh, astounded at what Jesus said and did. And, and that's what we want to do today. We want to look at those things that Jesus said and did, and we want to look at the authority of Jesus that, that he displayed then that is the authority that he still exercises today. But on our way there, let's just walk through um, verses, pick up, pick up in verse 21. There's just a few things I want to give us some background on. So it says, and they went into Capernaum. We mentioned that it's a town on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Now, I'm not going to assume that everybody knows what a synagogue is. You can find synagogues today. You can find synagogues in the area. Sometimes they're called temples. These are places of, of Jewish worship. And at, at the time of Jesus, the synagogue was the local place where Jewish people would come uh, to have the scriptures read, to have an, ex, an exposition of the scriptures. It was, it was also more or less a community center. The, the word synagogue is a Greek word. The Hebrew equivalent is Knesset. So if you um, have, know anything about the modern state of Israel, you know that they're... Um, their, like their uh, capital building is called the Knesset. So it, it was a place, the synagogue to them, the Bet Knesset. It was the place where you gathered as a community 
but it was also the center for the local place of scripture, reading, explanation, and meditation. Uh, Of course, the main center of worship was the temple in Jerusalem. But the temple was in Jerusalem, and so it was not easily accessed if you lived outside of Jerusalem. So the synagogue originated during the Babylonian captivity, and then it continued on through uh, the time of Christ, and actually, like I said, all the way down to this very day. You can find uh, synagogues all over um, our community here, all over Orange County. So it was there in the synagogue on the Sabbath that Jesus went in and he began to teach them. And so they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus taught them and and here there's a contrast that Mark gives us between the teaching of Jesus and the scribes. So Jesus taught them with an authority that was unlike anything that they had heard before. Um, The word authority, the English word authority, you know, think about this word. The word author is part of the word authority. And the word author means source. And uh, it was Tim Keller who said that, you know, take playing off that word authority and author. He said, when Jesus spoke to them, they, he, they sensed from him that he was the author of life. That, that he spoke in a way that nobody spoke, that he actually uh, knew what he was saying. And they could put absolute confidence in his word. But notice the contrast here is that he taught them uh, as one with authority and not as the scribes. So the scribes were the ones who would do the, the synagogue services. They were uh, rabbis. They were called rabbis, teachers, some of them. They were, some of them were Pharisees. Some of them were priests. Uh, but they would be the ones who would read through the scriptures and they would try to give an, you know, an exposition to some extent. But what the scribes would do is their authority was derived from the other more prominent teachers among them. So you go into a synagogue and they're going to read a passage of scripture and then they're going to tell you what 10 other teachers said about it and they're going to just leave it at that. So there, there wasn't anybody that spoke with the kind of authority that, the, you know, this is what I'm saying and this is what it means. So Jesus is so much different in that regard. Now, even the prophets, who of course did speak God's word, remember, if you go back into the prophets here in your Bible, here's what you're going to find the prophets always saying. They're going to say, thus says the Lord. And then they speak. And yes, they they are God's mouthpiece. They're speaking for God. But they're obviously not speaking, in a sense, with their own authority. They're speaking with God's authority. But I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not. Jesus never says, thus says the Lord. Never says it. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I say to you. You see, Jesus is the Lord. So he doesn't need to say, thus says the Lord. Instead, he says, I say to you. So this is the kind of teaching that Jesus brought to them, and this is what astounded them. This is what amazed them. It's like, man, he's speaking to us like like he's the Lord. Yes, that's exactly the point. He is the Lord, and that's why he's speaking in that way. So we see that Jesus spoke. He taught with authority, 
but we see also that Jesus exercised authority over evil spirits. Jesus exercised authority over Satan. And so um, it goes on. There was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. So an unclean spirit, sometimes it's translated an impure spirit. Sometimes it's translated an evil spirit. You know, during the time of Jesus, all hell broke loose, literally. And it's like, man, the demons came out of the woodwork. Now, what are demons? We're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about demons today because there's plenty of more uh, references to demons as we go through Mark. We'll really talk about it in detail when we get to the fifth chapter uh, where we see there a severely demon-possessed man. But, but demons are evil spirits. They're fallen angels, basically. They're obviously invisible, but they... Um, have wrecked havoc on humanity from the very beginning, and they do so today. But when Jesus came, it was like all of these demonic hordes, it was like they all said, okay, let's go. We got to team up. We got to stop this guy. And so that's why as you read through the gospels, Jesus encounters demon-possessed people all, uh, all throughout his ministry because they have, like I said, they've, they've literally come out of the woodwork to oppose what he is doing, but he has authority over them. Now, in those days, the Jewish people and, and their leaders, they could exercise an element of authority over demons. Jesus acknowledged that he said to the leaders at one point who were accusing him of casting out demons by the power of demons, he said, uh, by, then by who, who, whose authority do your children cast out demons? And so Jesus acknowledged that they casted out demons even uh, then at the time. But what they did is they went through this, they had to go through this ritual. They had to go through this long, lengthy, drawn out process of trying to exercise the demon from the person. But the difference with Jesus was he just spoke a word. He basically just said to the demon, shut up and get out. And the demon responded immediately. So this is what blew their minds because they'd never seen anything like that. If they did see an exorcism, like I said, it was this lengthy, long, drawn-out process that, you know, seemed to, did it, did it work or didn't it work? But with Jesus, it worked instantly. And so he exercised authority over demons. And also we see, as we read on in the, just the remainder of the verses here, that he exercised authority over sickness and disease. And so verse 29, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue. They entered the house of Simon. Simon is another name for Peter. And notice verse 30, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. So the mother-in-law of Peter is sick with a fever. Jesus just simply touches her, heals her, and she gets up immediately and begins to serve. So again, this was extraordinary. Nothing like this had uh, ever been uh, heard or seen by the people. And so this is what was astonishing to them. But here's what we need to remember today. That that authority that Jesus spoke with and demonstrated that astonished his hearers is with us today. Jesus has that, that same authority today. Nothing has changed with him. The problem today is that people aren't looking to him or are not listening to him. And you know, the, the reality is most people have no idea 
what Jesus said or did. Let's not assume, because it's a false assumption, let's not assume that people know any of this stuff. People don't. People in churches don't even know what Jesus said, let alone people out on the street. So we have to remember that these authoritative words that Jesus spoke were not just for that generation, but they are still words that are living and powerful today. The problem is most people don't know what Jesus said, and so we want to tell them as, you know, as often as the opportunity comes. But we live, as you know, in a world of conflicting opinions regarding just about everything under the sun. You know, it's like we live in a, a culture presently, especially, that is just in a continuous debate about everything. And granted, much of it is uh, trivial and it's unworthy of most of the attention uh, that's been given to it, but there still are a few uh, questions out there that are of vital importance. And what we need to know is that Jesus is the one who actually answers those questions. Questions like, how did I get here? You know, I, I had this question as a teenager. In the back of my mind, I wondered like, you know, where did I come from? I mean, obviously I knew where I came from in one sense, right? I came from my mother's womb. But, but I knew even then there was something beyond that. Where, where did I come from? Or another question is, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Or, you know, simply, what am I doing here? Um, what is in store for the future? These are the big questions that still are haunting people, and people haven't received a satisfactory answer for them. But listen, Jesus has the answer. And if you're here today with those questions, I want to tell you right now, Jesus has the answer, and you're going to hear it in just a moment. But we need to remember this as well ourselves. Those of us that have received these answers, we need to remember that people all around us have these questions, and Jesus is the one who has the answer, and he still speaks to this day with this astounding authority. And so we're going to just walk through these questions and just look at the answer that Jesus gave, remembering that the answer that he gave then is the answer still today. So question number one, how did I get here? Uh, where did we come from? This, this is a huge question. It's the question of origins. Are we here by accident or are we here intentionally? Did we just come about through natural processes or was there a, a supernatural power that that brought us into existence. Well, Jesus said that we are a result of God's creative power. In this gospel, Mark chapter 10, and I've, I've purposely put the boundaries here on Mark's gospel, rather than referring to Matthew, Luke, or John, I just, all my references are gonna be in Mark today. Uh, but Jesus said this in Mark 10, six. He said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So what, how, how did we get here? Jesus says, God made us. That's how we got here. Now, of course, from the beginning of creation, he's going all the way back, and he's talking about the first two people. He's talking about Adam and Eve. And we know the story that God 
uh, formed man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his uh, nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. And then we know that uh, just shortly after that, God uh, created the woman from the man. And so God directly created the first two human beings and then built into us, built into them and subsequently to us, the ability to reproduce. And of course, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the answer of Jesus to the question, how did I get here? The answer of Jesus is, in the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You know, there are many, many people out there that have no idea that Jesus even addressed this issue. They don't have any idea that Jesus actually said uh, Jesus was a creationist. Jesus actually said from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. So, of course, there are many conflicting voices in the culture that would argue against this. There are those that would say, well, we know that that can't be true because there, there isn't even a God. Science has disproven God and uh, God didn't make us. We evolved. We know for a scientific fact that evolution is true and naturalism is true. You know, people will say that today. People will argue that today. Um, but, you know, honestly, when they do that, they are not being honest. In, in some cases, they've not, not even really seriously considered it. In other cases, if they have considered it, they're not being honest. Um, I love when it comes to things like this, I think to go to the sources themselves and listen to what they're saying about these kinds of things is the best way to go. So I want to quote to you from um, George Wald. George, George Wald was uh, a Nobel uh, laureate. He was a uh, Harvard University biochemist. And I want you to listen to what he says. And what I want you to listen to is his honesty. Because this is the problem. There's just a ton of dishonesty out there. Here's a guy who believes that we came about through natural processes. Doesn't believe in God, believes in the evolutionary process, but at least he's honest about it. And listen to what he says. He says, one only has to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is, po is impossible. So that, you know, life just came about through natural processes. He says, that's impossible. Yet, we are here as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. When it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. That's very honest right there. There's no third way. It's either God created or it all came about through natural processes, either God or what we would commonly refer to as evolution. So listen to what he says. He says, spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago. But that leads us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. And now here's the punchline. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible that life arose spontaneously by chance. So this guy, Harvard University biochemist, Nobel laureate, says this is a philosophical debate. It is not a scientific debate. We can't accept this on philosophical grounds. He's basically just saying, I just don't believe there's a God. 
And although this other thing is impossible, it's got to be that because it can't be this because my worldview doesn't allow for that. But Jesus says in the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So Jesus tells us how we got here. God created us. And notice he says God created them male and female, which also is extremely relevant statement in the current climate. But we won't talk about that today. We'll move on to our next point. So what is the meaning and purpose in life? You know, what, what is life about? And this is a question that I think is buried under the surface of every single person's conscience. In our subconscious, this is something that's there. It's, it's, it's gnawing away at us. What, what is our purpose? Why, you know, why am I here? What, is, what does life mean? And like I said earlier, I remember uh, as a teenager, these things were in the back of my mind. They, they bothered me. I... I I wanted to know because I felt like, you know, something just doesn't make sense. I, I, these are things that I, I need answers to. And that's true with, I think, lots and lots of people still today. So what is the meaning and purpose of life? Well, again, Jesus answered that in this gospel here, Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. This is what Jesus said. He said, the first of all the commandments is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he added, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, this is, this is the meaning of life. The meaning of life is knowing God, loving God, obeying God, serving God. That, that's what life is about. Now, once again, we have plenty of conflicting voices in the culture, right? Um, there are philosophers in the culture that would say, no, 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 life, you know, life doesn't really have a meaning. You know, it, it's interesting because much of philosophy that has forever been trying to figure out what life is about, much of modern philosophy has come to the conclusion that there is no meaning or purpose in life. But, you know, I just absolutely refuse to accept that. Even if I wasn't a Christian, I would refuse to accept that because everything inside me says, no, that's not true. Everything inside me says, no, there's, there's got to be some meaning. There's got to be some purpose to life. Well, again, Jesus said that there is. Life is about knowing God. Philosopher says, no, life is meaningless. Uh, celebrities, you know, celebrities might say something like, no, well, you know, life is about being famous. Life is about enjoying yourself, uh, pleasure. Um, they might not put it in those exact words, but that's pretty much what they have concluded by the way they live. Um, maybe if you look into the realm of psychology, you might find that the psychologist would say, well, you know, life is about discovering who you are and, and loving yourself and all of that. And so the, these are the different voices. And when a person asks the question, what is life about? You're going to get a variety of different answers. But Jesus spoke to this with these words. Life is about knowing God. Think about that. That's, that's what life is about. You are here. I am here primarily to know God. That's why we're here. And as long as we live our lives outside of the primary purpose for our existence, that is going to be frustrating. That is going to lead to emptiness. That is going to cause us to live in, a, in like a state of, of futility. It's only when we come to know personally 
why we're here and the one that we were made for, that's when life makes sense. I love the way J.I. Packer put it in his classic book, Knowing God. He, he said this, he said, once you become aware that the main business you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. The world today is full of sufferers from the wasting disease known as absurdism. Absurdism is life's a bad joke. To many, everything becomes at once a problem and a bore because nothing seems worthwhile. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance, and this the Christian has in a way that no other person has for what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know, to love, and to serve God. Man, that's it. What, what is the problem in life? The problem in life is like, you know, like, like he said, uh, absurdism is just that idea that everything is at once a problem and a bore. There, there's nothing worthwhile. And this is where you eventually go in life. You keep trying to find a cause, something that's bigger than yourself, something to, to bring significance and meaning, and you want to dedicate yourself to that. But you know, there's a point where it just, it runs out. God is the reason we're here. We are here to know God and to have a relationship with him. And so when Jesus is asked that question, you know, what is the most important, it's the commandment, what is the first and the great commandment, what is the most important thing in life? He said, knowing God. That's the most important thing in life. And then thirdly, this is a huge question that everybody has hidden somewhere in their hearts. What is in store for the future? What does the future hold? I mean, isn't that what we all want to know? You know, what is the future going to be like? What, what's going to happen in the future? What, what's going to happen in the, the bigger picture of the world? What's going to happen more personally in my life? Well, the Bible definitely tells us about the future. The Bible is the one book that tells the future with 100% accuracy. There's nothing else uh, in the world that does anything like that. There's no uh, you know, person that you're going to go to, some sort of a fortune teller or somebody that's going to you know, read your tarot cards or any of that kind of stuff that's going to tell you, hey, you know, this is what's going to happen. No, it doesn't work. God himself says that he alone knows the future. And he tells us about the future. And I want to talk about the future in the, in the bigger sense. And this is what Jesus said. In answer to the question, what's in store for the future? Jesus said this, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Jesus said that the future ultimately is about him and about his coming back to set up God's kingdom in this world. Now, we are here today, and we are here because the prophetic word about Jesus has been partially fulfilled. See, it's been partially fulfilled because the prophets told of the Messiah who would come, and 
the, the main picture of the Messiah is that he would come and fix the world. He would, he would make the world back to what God intended it to be. Just simply, he would make it into a glorious, wonderful paradise. Now, one of the reasons why Jewish people who have expectation for a Messiah say Jesus isn't the Messiah is because he didn't do that. Okay, you guys say Jesus is the Messiah. He came and went. How come the world's such a mess still? Because we know that the Messiah is going to fix the problems of the world. Well, they're right and they're wrong. (laughs) Yes, the Messiah is going to fix the problems of the world. But what they missed out on is that the first part of that fixing had to do with dealing with the root of the problem, which is sin and Satan. And that's what Jesus did in his first coming. So most of the prophecies in the Bible... Actually, the majority of prophecies speak of the second coming of Christ, but there's a small handful of prophecies that speak of what we would know now as his first coming. And those prophecies tell us that he would come and he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. God was basically going to make his soul an offering for sin. And that's what happened. But again, the, the hope, the messianic hope, That's the foundation of it. But the real messianic hope is is that Christ is going to come again. So, of course, there are people today who would say, you know, that's a joke. Jesus is not going to return. Jesus was, who was Jesus? He was just this guy that lived and died. Or some people say he never even lived. But certainly Jesus is not coming again. They might say, you know, Christians have been saying this stuff for centuries. It's never going to happen. And they would go on, you know, the world is going to continue to evolve upward socially, technologically, scientifically, morally. You know, one day it's going to be perfect. People today call themselves progressives, meaning that we're making progress. We're moving forward. There's a better world ahead. Well, there is a better world ahead. It's just not the one they're envisioning. There's a better world ahead with Jesus uh, in charge. With Jesus running the show. That's when it's going to be its ultimate because he said that he is going to come again. So someone says out there, maybe even you, you say, well, Jesus isn't coming again. Well, he said he is. So you got to argue with him about that. He said he's going to come again. And you either believe that or you don't. Now, interestingly though, Just like prophecy told us, you know, that he would come into the world, prophecy also, there are also prophecies that tell us what the world is going to look like in the process of waiting for him to return, and prophecies that tell us what the world is going to uh, look like at the time that his uh, coming is near. And guess what? The world looks an awful lot like what the Bible says it would look like. And one of the key components, again, no time to go into it, but one of the key components in all of this is the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. You know, somebody said this, and I think it's absolutely true. One of the great proofs that there is a God are the Jewish people. It's hard to explain the Jewish people without the existence of a God. The only people ever in all of history scattered throughout the whole world, and for 2,000 years at that, and then to be brought back into their homeland. And that's exactly what the prophets said would happen. And here's another irony. The people who came to restore the state of Israel didn't do it because they read the Bible and said, you know, the prophecies say that's going to happen, so we got to go do it. These people were atheists. 
They just simply said, we got to have a place to live where people aren't trying to kill us all the time. So uh, our, our history originated in this place. Let's go back there. But God has used all of those things. So what does the future hold? Well, the future is ultimately that Christ is going to return and he's going to set up that long-awaited kingdom. And your future is radically wrapped up in that reality because your future is really dependent on your relationship with him. If you're connected with him through faith, then that future that he will establish, you have a part of that. If you're not connected with him, if you reject him, then you don't have a part with that future. But if you want to know about the future, that's what's coming. When is it coming exactly? We don't know, but it will come. Finally, so our final point here, huge question, a question everybody asks at some time or another, what happens after we die? Now, everybody asks this question. Anybody who doesn't ask this question isn't thinking because obviously everybody's going to die. You know, there are people though that say, oh, I don't want to think about that. No, I don't, I don't care. You know, I'm not worried about that. I'm just going to live right now. Just enjoy myself. Doesn't matter what happens after I die. Well, you might think that for a while. But, you know, there, there is a point that that question will arise undoubtedly. But once again, guess who answered that question? Jesus answered that question. And Jesus said this in Mark 16, 16. He said, whoever believes the gospel will be saved, but whoever does not believe the gospel will be condemned. So what happens after you die? Jesus says you're either saved or you're not saved. Now, maybe some of you might remember um, back around Easter time. It was actually on Easter Sunday. I was talking about the resurrection on Easter Sunday, which is what you talk about on Easter Sunday. And I was was, uh, sharing that in the course of my preparation, I had gone through literally hundreds of quotes from people going back, you know, 3,500 years in history regarding death. And maybe you remember, uh, one of the things that absolutely astounded me is as I read through, you know, uh, page after page after page after page of people talking about death, the one thing I concluded is that no one knows what they're talking about. It's obvious. Everybody's just guessing. But in these hundreds of quotes I read on death, there were a few quotes actually from Jesus about death. And every time I read a quote from Jesus, I thought, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. You know, he says, I am he who is dead. I'm alive. Nobody else said that. So Jesus is speaking again with that kind of authority. And and what does he say? Whoever believes the gospel will be saved. And whoever does not believe the gospel will be condemned. So that's the answer. What happens after we die? We either go to be with the Lord, with him, in his kingdom forever, or we're separated from him. Not because God wants anybody to be separated from him, but because we choose to be separated and he honors our choice. So everyone can believe and be saved. But God, of course, knows that not everyone will be saved. And that, that is, it's so sad. It's so tragic. 
You know, to think of a person who right to the very end just says, no, I don't need that. I'm okay. I'm good. It's going to be good. Jesus said, it's not going to be good. You're going to be, you're going to be separated. And that's really, you know, what heaven and hell are. Heaven is God's presence for eternity. Hell is outside of God's presence for eternity. And being outside of God's presence means that you are away from everything that is of God. And you're, you're not only away from everything that is of God, but you are there without hope of any reversal of that. You know, some people say, well, hey, of course there's a hell. We're living in it today. This is hell. And there are places on earth that you, uh, certainly there are places and circumstances that you might uh, look at and say, no, man, that's hell right there. Well, as bad as that might be, that's not hell. You know why? Because there's still, anywhere here on earth, there's still something good that is connected to God and what he's made and, you know, all, all of that. It, there's still something there and there's still hope. But hell is that place where none of that is there and there's no hope. And people go to one place or the other by their own choice. But Jesus, of course, says that he intends and hopes that all will believe. Whoever believes the gospel will be saved. What is the gospel really quickly? The gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. We're sinners. We've all sinned. Some have sinned in ways that um, are obvious to everybody and horrible. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that person did that. And some people are sin in ways that people wouldn't even see, but God sees it. We're all sinners. And when the Bible says that Christ died for our sins, it means that he died to pay the penalty for our sins. Because our sins separate us from God, Jesus died to pay that penalty. But he didn't only die, he also rose again from the dead so we could be justified or we could be made righteous. You know, yesterday we were doing that baptism. It was such a great day. 500 plus people baptized. It was really astounding. But as we were doing, you know, the preparation for having people come out to be baptized, uh, Greg was kind of giving everybody just a little bit of, um, you know, instruction. And, and he was, he kind of, was alluding to uh, the baptism as being a bit like a funeral. Because in baptism, you know, you go into the water, it, it's like a grave. He said, it's a happy funeral, of course, because, uh, you know, we're, we're basically burying our sins. But, you know, I, I thought and I said after that, you know, actually what we're doing here is we are, uh, we're witnessing a death, but we're witnessing a simultaneous resurrection. See, because that's what happens. Jesus died for our sins so that we could be uh, brought back to life with a new life. And that's what it means that he rose for our justification and he gives life to all who turn to him in faith. So this is the amazing thing. Jesus gives life to all that turn to him by faith. He gives us life. It's, it's just his gift to us. And it's eternal life. And eternal life extends on out forever, but it starts right now. It starts right now with coming to know God like we talked about. The, the purpose of life. What am I doing here? I'm here to know God. I'm here to know the one who made me. How do I, how do I get into that? I get into that by believing the gospel. And listen, 
as you can see, with no ambiguity and no uncertainty, Jesus answered life's most vital questions. You know, the thing that you will see about Jesus is Jesus never, never says things like this. Well, you know, let me think about that for a moment. Uh, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Jesus never says, you know, I'm not sure, but it might be like this. Jesus never says that kind of stuff. You know, we say that stuff all the time. It, it kind of, I find it kind of humorous when I read, you know, I like to read articles and things by, you know, people in the scientific community talking about how certain we are that uh, we evolved and all of that. And, and it always, the language always cracks me up, though. It's like, well, you know, perhaps this happened and maybe it went like this. And then we think that it could. It's like there's so much uncertainty in that terminology. Jesus never, ever, ever did that. He just made these authoritative statements. He said it. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to reword it. He didn't have to go back and correct it. With no ambiguity, no uncertainty, Jesus answered life's most vital questions. Those answers that he gave are true for all time, all people, and all places. These are universal truths. They're true for everyone, everywhere, all the time. And it is amazing. You know, one of the things I was telling somebody earlier today, one of the things that, that's kind of just happening right now for me, for some reason, I just keep coming across these stories of God's intervention into people's lives that, that is so powerful. And the thing about it that's really just astounding me today is how in, in these particular stories I'm hearing, it's like God is circumventing even people. He, he's not even necessarily using people primarily. He's just going right for the person directly. And, and I'm just hearing story after story about these like God encounters and from people all around the world in all different kinds of circumstances with all different kinds of backgrounds from all different kinds of religions, beliefs, or even unbeliefs. And, and he's just doing that because that's what he does. Because his word is for everyone. And it's absolutely certain for everyone. And so you can rest assured today. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, as, as a preacher or a teacher, and I know other guys struggle with this. You know, sometimes you feel like, I, you know, I got to convince everybody. And man, I just wish I could do a better job with that. And then I stop and remember, well, you know, the truth of the matter is that Jesus is alive and well. And I just do my best and trust him for the rest. He can meet you right where you're at. He can speak right to you. He can show you things that um, you need to be shown. Those deep things in your heart and mind that nobody knows but you, guess what? He knows them too. And he will speak to you in regard to those things. So you will know that this is none other than God that's speaking to me in order that he might do this very thing, ultimately bring you into a relationship with himself. So Lord, we thank you that you came. And when we were basically in the dark regarding all of these things, Lord, you clarified 
these things for us. Lord, even if we maybe were able to figure out that um, we must be created rather than come about through natural processes, Lord, you brought the, the personal aspect into that, that yes, we were created, but we were created by a very specific God. And so, Lord, even today, I pray that for all of those who believe in you, trust in you, pray that our faith would be strengthened and pray that our, um, Lord, just our, our hearts would be calmed and, and settled because we know that we can trust your word, that your word has power, that your word has authority. And Lord, for anyone that's with us today that has yet to put their faith in you, in your word, who has yet to turn to you and meet you and come into the very purpose for their existence, Lord, may today be the day that they have that encounter that will forever change their life and their destiny. Work by your spirit. Lord, thank you that you're the living Lord. You're here today and you're speaking to hearts. So draw to yourself those that you love. We pray in your name.